This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Welcome back. I'm Khadija. In this episode, we had the great pleasure of talking to Dr. Mona Mas'ud. Mona is a general adult psychiatrist serving the greater Philadelphia area. She was a board member of the Muslim Wellness Foundation for five years and is the founder of the Physician Support Line, whose over 800 volunteer psychiatrists have been providing mental health support for physicians struggling under the pressures of the coronavirus pandemic. We discuss the emotional fallout of our post-9-11 lives and the power of going small, whether Western psychiatry has the answers to Muslim problems, and how to deal with people who hate you. We also look at what is behind our impulse to divide people into heroes and villains, and how that affects the way that we treat them. Don't forget, new episodes come out on Mondays every other week. We hope that as you've been listening, it stirred your own memories and reflections. We warmly invite you to share them with us, be it in text form or as a voice note. And you can email those to us at muslim-in-plain-sight at gmail.com. This invitation is to all listeners, regardless of background or age. If you would like to contribute but remain anonymous, just let us know in the email. And we'd like to send a huge thank you to those of you who have already sent in your stories and thoughts. If you would like to support the show, you can donate to us by clicking the link in the description. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or share your favourite episode on social media. And last but not least, you can simply tell your family and friends about it. And now, I'll leave you in the warm and capable hands of Dr. Mona Mas'ud. Assalamu alaikum, this is Anissa. Assalamu alaikum, this is Khadija. And today we're really blessed and honored to have Dr. Mona Masood joining us on the podcast. Assalamualaikum, Mona. Waalaikum salam, guys. I'm really honestly honored to be here with you today. Thank you so much. And also like personal disclosure here. Mona is also a friend of mine and I really admire her. Aww. So we're really happy to have you on. It's my first time meeting Mona, and I'm so happy to um, meet you <laughs> across the oceans. Jazakallah for taking the time out. Um, oh, waiyakum. And I'm going to do something drastic to you right now, which is my favorite thing, time travel. Are you ready <laughs> to, to go back? Let's do this thing. Okay, bismillah. So, 10th of September 2001. Can you tell us about Mona Masood then? Who were you? I was a sophomore um, in high school in the United States. So that is uh, 10th grade. I was about um, about 15 years old. And I was uh, one year from starting hijab. I started hijab um, when I first started high school, uh, about a year prior. And I thought that, you know, I was starting to get the hang of this um, being visibly Muslim thing um, for the first time. And I was starting to make what I saw as very meaningful relationships that were based on just 
human connections and same interests and and being valued as a human being. And it felt good. And it felt that I could perhaps find that sweet spot between being true to myself as a Muslim and be true to myself, you know, as an American teenager. And that was me, September 10th. That really strikes me because I was also 15 and I had also started wearing hijab the year before at the beginning of the school year. (laughs) And I think I was also kind of in that place of like, you know, at first I was nervous. I didn't know how people would react, but like, you know, people had accepted me for who I was kind of. And I was like, yeah, like I can do this thing. Yeah. And then everything changed, right? It kind of feels like you're both saying that the safest you felt was literally the 10th of September. I think, you know, what happens and what I notice as a part of my work is when something incredibly traumatizing happens, that we often remember the time right before that as being particularly safe. And it is the juxtaposition and that jarring feeling that really is um that stays with us is because we went from being com- feeling completely safe to being traumatized. So that eye of the hurricane um, is is kind of how I describe how I felt right before 9-11. It's just that we had that false sense of security at that time. And, you know, we um, as we're navigating this other, you know, period of our life that is filled with so much crises and so much trauma, but also um, so much thoughtfulness and so much insight on who we are and who we want to be with this pandemic, it's it's pretty amazing that, you know, we're we're at the 20th anniversary in the middle of something that is so huge yet again. I think it really is bringing us back to that space. And it's easy in some ways to recall who we were on September 10th Mm -hmm. because we're, you know, we're kind of going through um, yet another event, um, another kind of global event that we are navigating. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely really well said. We talk a lot about where we were when we found out. And like, I think no matter where we were, we have a pretty universal feeling of like shock and horror and like grief. But then I think for Muslim Americans and like Muslims in other places as well, there was a moment when we realized that this would affect us differently, that we weren't just Americans that were grieving a national tragedy, just like everyone else. Could you tell us when that moment was for you when you realized that? Yeah, for me, I remember that exact moment. I don't think that there's much of that day that I I can forget. But that exact moment was, I, I remember it was in Spanish class. And I was um watching the TV because no matter as a, you know, the classes were changing, the bells were ringing and we would move from one class to another. It was eerily silent um, mm-hmm. as we made those transitions. But the TVs were never off. We, j- we didn't do any work that day. We just kept going from class to class, kind of going through the motions. But then we would just sit down and continue watching the television that was tuned in into the news. And I remember I was in Spanish class and I looked up and before this point, the two planes had hit the World Trade Centers. There was talk of what is going on in the Pentagon. There was the crash in Pennsylvania. 
of the other plane. And in my mind, the only thought I kept having prior to this moment was, you know, I really hope this isn't a Muslim. I hope that this isn't, um, you know, more tragic than it already is. But, you know, I think you know this, Anissa, Khadija, you might have felt it across the ocean. Um, even if we were desperately praying that it wasn't inside somewhere we knew it was, or these people would claim that they were, and that, yeah. that this was going to have so much more meaning to us very shortly. And I remember that moment, and I looked at the TV, and then they show a bearded man wearing a turban. I never saw him before, um, but you would never forget who that face is because that face would be covering every TV screen, every media outlet for decades. Um, and you would be very familiar with that name. <laughs> kind of, you know, he who must not be named <laughs> kind of a feel to the whole thing. But that's when it kind of happened and I knew it was it was forever changed, that everything that we knew was forever changed. It, it didn't matter what his name was, what everyone saw was, you know, was Muslim, was Islam. And and all of a sudden I I really felt alone and I felt very much like all that, that I was building until that point um, in my person and in my identity, um, it was taken away. Mm. You were here in North Carolina at that point in high school. Yeah, yeah, no, I was. Yeah, I was in North Carolina. I went to Enloe High School, which is a magnet mm -hmm. school um, in the Raleigh area, and we were, you know, very proud of being, uh, a, a, you know, a diverse school, and you know, as a, it, it encouraged a lot of, you know, it would tell. It, I always felt like it was like, oh, you know, everyone can think for themselves and you meet so many different types of people and, and you're really allowed to be who you are. And it was knowing that I was going to such a school that even encouraged me to um, start hijab the year prior because I thought that, you know, if I was going to start it, this would be a great environment of, of you know, people who were going to be thinkers and, and be thoughtful. And um and and it changed. It wasn't quite like that. So you say that it changed. Can you describe a little bit of what that change was and, you know, how dramatic was it? Did it carry on? Did it carry over into your university experience as well? Yes, because I think what what the immediate change was that people, I, I, I would feel, and these were the first times I would even um, experience the term microaggression. Like these, uh, th that term is very much um, described and analyzed, um, you know, in a, in in the our current context quite a bit when it comes to race relations. But back then, I didn't have the terms for it, and but I knew. I knew what it felt like, and it would be that change in eye contact, that kind of curt um, response in, to a conversation, that um, that disinclusion that would happen for things um, such as, oh, we're going out for lunch, do you want to join? It was all of those things started happening. It wasn't overt, and which these things seldom are overt, which allows us to rationalize that they're okay. If it wasn't said, then it must not have happened is, is, is kind of what you're left with. But it's not true. So much of our communication is nonverbal, as we all know. 
And it was not so much what was said as much as it was what was not said. And the easy conversations, the belonging that I felt uh, would fall away. And I remember, you know, I was a pretty social person. And I, I think I, in general that, that, that did continue in some ways, but I was a I was kind of considered a social butterfly in in high school, you know, with all all the different types of people. But I remember I started, you know, actually taking lunch in a in a teacher's room. I would not be spending time with my my classmates. I would actually prefer to eat alone. I would spend a lot of time. I remember playing kind of like word games as as more of a distraction during those time periods because I felt otherwise that I was wearing a mask the whole time. I, it was very hard to keep up appearances. I felt like I was a performing. I had to show everyone that I'm okay. And by showing everyone I'm okay, I didn't invite suspicion, I felt that people wouldn't doubt me, they wouldn't see me as, you know, being one of them. But it was exhausting. It was exhausting to play that card of being the, you know, the, the model minority, the the one that was very American, that was going to prove their patriotism, mm -hmm. that was going to be the best at everything and be thankful for it, to be thankful to be American. And I felt like I would do that and it would be exhausting and I would need breaks in my day from it so I could just be me. Can I ask you if that is a role that you sort of took on for yourself or felt that you had to take on? Or was that something that you felt was demanded of you? A little bit of both. Part of it was self-preservation. Part of it was watching that there were a rise in hate-related incidents. And part of it was the worry in my, in my family, you know, what we would discuss when we would all be home together at night and the conversation that would happen at, at the masjid about, you know, is it really important to wear hijab right now? What would the prophet do if something like this had happened? Is it important for men to have beards? Should if What should we be doing? And, and the conversation was about survival. I did mm -hmm. not end up removing my hijab. I kept it on, but I became very, very hyper aware of it. And I would become kind of, you know, hypervigilant of, of just my surroundings, which are, you know, as a psychiatrist, you uh, eventually realize as, you know, falling into criteria for PTSD. Yeah. But you, you would notice, um, you know, you would be aware of everyone, the way they looked at you, the way that they made space for you. Um, you would always try to be one step ahead of people. You would put yourself out there and smile, see if the smile was returned. And if it wasn't returned exactly the way that you were hoping, you would like go out of your way to put that person at ease. You would really be there and fully present, like, no, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to do anything. And it's exhausting to be con constantly doing for others. Mm -hmm. And it was something that I think was an invisible burden that, you know, I carried for years. You talked about how you were just starting to kind of feel comfortable in your skin, in your Muslim identity um, before all of this, and that kind of got swept away, right? Mm -hmm. and so how did this, 
you know, having to be kind of an ambassador, having to, you know, reassure people of how like unthreatening and, you know, unsuspicious <laughs> you were. Right. Like, I think many of us, I mean, I can completely agree with everything mm. that you just said. <laughs> how did that shape your identity as a Muslim from that point? Like, did it change? Did it shake the foundations of that identity? Did it make your identity stronger as a Muslim? Mm. Yeah, it it really made me do a lot of self-reflection on and it really forced me to be very intentional. And intention is a very big concept, as we all know, as in our religion, we are nothing except intentions, really. And in this case, what it meant was, what am I doing this for? Who am I doing it for? And what purpose does it have? And those questions would come up quite a lot for me. And it would be very hard to figure out exactly, you know, why I was doing the things I was. And I would, of course, focus on, you know, that trust in Allah and believing that he's going to protect me and and he's my best of protectors. All of those kind of concepts that we would know theoretically, we would know the duas for, we would, you know, very easily answer if somebody asked us on a test who who do we look for and who do we ask for help? Those were tested. Trauma is so overwhelming. It it makes us feel, you know, shaken and not on solid ground. We're desperate. We become desperate to hold on to anything that feels consistent or, or solid. And though we knew that theoretically, we grew up with that in Sunday school and all of that, this really forced us to realize as a Muslim um, it really forced me, I should say, to realize that that solid ground I was searching was, in fact, my faith, which was at the center of all of this. And I am thankful for that. Mm. It's really fascinating, but also saddening to hear you apply the lens of your professional knowledge to sort of 15-year-old Mona. That's, <laughs> I just want to take a moment for her because it's that's a lot for if you think about it for a 15 year old to handle so then after going through all of that and then you know continuing on did you find that what you experienced in the aftermath of 911 played a role in your decision to become a psychiatrist oh gosh yeah, ab- absolutely i'll tell you something interesting because i was you know contemplating this myself recently and when I started residency and when I chose to go into psychiatry, it's it's amazing how we go to the defenses that are familiar to us and maybe not what are good for us, but what are familiar to us. And my mind went right back to doing this thing where I had to be, uh, I had to show myself as being like super American, like my accent was perfect. I knew all the pop culture references. I was able to relate to everyone. And I really needed to to present that about me. And it went right back to that 15-year-old self, which needed to show everyone how um, American I am. And in the case of uh, uh, being a psychiatrist or being in this field, um, the purpose of that was the same purpose, actually, that I felt after 9-11, which is I felt like an imposter. And I felt like an imposter as as a 15-year-old. Um, imposter in what sense? And in the sense that I didn't know who I was and that I was having an identity crisis. And, I, and at one end, people were asking me to be 
you know, to show us that it's either us or the terrorists. I'll always remember that, that kind of phrase. That would if you're be, not with us, you're against yeah, us. Yeah, if you're not with us, you're against us. If you're not with us, you're with the terrorists. It was always something like that, this dichotomy. And so I desperately, again, out of self-preservation, made it a point to choose to show that, you know, I'm American, I'm American, I'm American. And that was a familiar kind of place to go to again when I started residency, because what I needed to show in residency is that just because I wear the hijab, just because I'm Muslim, doesn't mean that I can't understand or empathize or take care of or heal or partner or work with people who don't look like me. And, um, and that same feeling came up again where, I felt like I needed to prove to my patients that, hey, I get it. I'm just as American as you are. And it came so easily back to me um, mm. when I started residency. And it was interesting because a person who pointed it out to me, because I was doing this subconsciously without even realizing it. And um, the person who pointed it out to me is, is, uh, is actually a Jewish man who's my mentor, he's my program director. In psychiatry residency, we're required something different than just um, other residents, which is we go for something called supervision weekly, which is we go over our therapy cases with you know, an experienced psychiatrist or mentor, and they kind of are there to help us navigate the parts of us that interfere with the ther a therapy for the other person, like almost become like a therapist for the therapist. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so we're required to do that. And it makes a lot of sense because we have to be able to call ourselves out. In the end, we're a human being um, with another human being. So we're going to have our own blind spots and our own psychologies that present themselves in the therapeutic space. And so I would go to um, my weekly supervisions and I would talk about my cases and all of that. And one day, just out of the blue, he says, do you talk about your hijab? And I was shocked because we never talked about religion prior to this. Um, this was always, you know, center the patient, what's going on with them and all of this. And he asked me, do you ever do you ever talk about hijab with your patients? And I said, why would I do that? I, I barely think about it, which is a lie. <laughs> of course it is and of course it is yeah and so all i get is a raised eyebrow like he doesn't he say knew. a word he knew he knew, <laughs> he knew. and this is a, a you know this is a jewish man and he is you know like decades older than me he, he finally retired from psychiatry and hope i'm hoping he has a wonderful retirement he just raises an eyebrow doesn't say a thing which is such a psychiatrist thing to do and then he's just waiting for me to kind of, you know, go down the rabbit hole by myself and he'll just observe. And I did. And I was just like, no, really, really, I don't think about it. It's just, you know, it's it's not everything. It's not about, like and Were I'm you going convincing on. him or yourself. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and it, it was and it, I was convincing myself, trying to at least that, you know, I'm a good psychiatrist and I told myself I'm a good psychiatrist despite the hijab. And what he helped me understand was that I'm a good psychiatrist because of my hijab. And and he wanted and he thought it was important for me to recognize me as a whole person. And and he could see what I was doing 
in terms of, you know, really trying to put myself out there as you can trust me, you can talk to me, I get it, I'm so there with you and, and all of this. And, and he was saying, you know, that the problem in that is that it becomes about you, you're looking for validation from your patient, rather than you being there for them in their narrative. And the key thing was that I came away really acknowledging that it is not a dichotomy. It is not that I'm either American or I'm Muslim, that I am simultaneously both. I am sometimes, you know, neither, like in in that they exist in the same space. Um, I am a lot of different things, but it didn't have to be such a it didn't have to be such a, um, uh, you know, separation there. They didn't have to be this mutual exclusivity. And I realized, you know, that that's where wellness lay was when I was able to see myself as a whole person. So in some ways, like the process of becoming a psychiatrist required you to sort of sew together those different parts of your identity into mm-hmm. that that whole person. Yeah, and it absolutely did. I often say this, um, I, and I try to be very intentional that anything that I am saying to my patients that I mean it for myself too. But, you know, I often say to my patients that you you have to have breakdowns to have breakthroughs. And um, we have to mm-hmm. be able to break down all of these different defenses, all these different narratives, these self, you know, serving narratives and these self-protective narratives really and we have to f- uh, be vulnerable. We have to allow vulnerability and and um, ourselves to be raw at times, before we, you know, see who we truly are, and we we build from there. And and this is meant to happen multiple times. And that is not at odds with our faith. Our faith often reminds us that humility is a key component of a believer, and that. You know, being vulnerable and 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 being thoughtful about the things we do and the things we feel and the things we say, these are all part and parcel of being a good human being. It's not asking for perfection. It's uh, our faith doesn't ask for us to be anything other than ourselves, but it asks us to accept our fallibilities, accept ourselves as who we are, so we can grow. Mm-hmm. But actually say rather than being not being at odds, I think actually to get the closest to other, you you need to have those hitting the bottom moments. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, how yes. else do you develop that closeness until everything's taken away? Like the things that you usually depend on, when you can no longer depend on them, who then do you depend on? Right. It's it's that 15-year-old self again where I... It, reminded me that it was, you know, in the end, how was I living my life more intentionally? And and, and, and what did intention mean? And, and it went back to the, having trust and faith and feeling grounded was only in the one thing that was guaranteed to be consistent ever, which was God. And, and that's where I would find it again and again. And I even as a psychiatrist, that's where I often find it. Even when I'm in the role with even my patients who are not Muslim, it is very easy to to find those lessons that are from the faith that, you know, are applicable to everyone because in the end there's the one there's one creator. And whether, 
the person is Muslim or not Muslim, there's that inner fitra that my role is where I'm discussing all of these different parts of the human emotional experience. And they're all the same, whether I'm talking to a Muslim or not, it's all the same. And it reminds you that, you know, of course, it's all the same, because it's all united to the one creator. Mm. So you had this kind of breakthrough of you know, you got to a place where you didn't feel like you had to separate your faith from your practice of psychiatry anymore. And in fact, it was an asset. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, as you're starting your professional life, there's so much hostility and hatred against Muslims. Did you ever feel like you were able to kind of push back against that in your professional life? Or was it did it have to be something that you kind of did using your example? Um, Did you Mm -hmm. face any backlash? you know, in that setting? So I took that to heart, that lesson that I learned during residency, which is that I cannot separate these two things and nor should I. And if I'm actually a more present and more thoughtful and more authentic psychiatrist when I am who I am. But the way that it has come back is um, that in, in the end, in, in the end, again, there's the things that are unsaid which are the microaggressions that you see and you feel and the dismissive nature of, of people when, you know, they, they see you as being the other. Uh, Sometimes people will write you off as being, uh, there's no way you can understand me because you're, uh, you know, a completely different faith. You're, you know, there's so many intersections, right? I'm a, I'm a person of color. I'm a, I'm a Muslim and I wear hijab and I'm a woman. And there's all of these different things. And any one of these things can, you know, if a person is holding some sort of um, negative feelings towards any of those aspects of my identity, then yes, I'm going to be the punching bag for, for that person's feelings. But I will say what I have found to be a silver lining since then, even in a difficult situation, is that I have veterans who are my patients. I have several veterans who are my patients. And nowadays, veterans are people who have been in Afghanistan and have been in Iraq. That's that's yeah. the people I'm seeing. I mean, it's 20 years. And so these are the veterans that I see now. And I often bring up my faith in those conversations because it is important for us to discuss that, you know, that there's a possibility that they see me as, or they, they see in me, you know, reminders of what, of who they saw overseas. And there is definitely the fact that they're coming back from these incredibly traumatic situations. They're coming to me oftentimes with PTSD, um, oftentimes with a lot of depression, a lot of what I call um, and what a lot of people call moral injury, where they feel like they've done things or seen things that compromise their moral compass and um, during wartime. And they're there to discuss it with me. But in some ways, I represent perhaps you know, the side of war that brings them a lot of discomfort because I look like the people that they were there with. And so I bring up the conversation and and I don't shy away from it when before I would have, you know, it would have been the elephant in the room. But often, even in the first session, I, I end up asking them, how does it feel to be talking about your experiences and being vulnerable, you know, with a Muslim woman? What does it mean to you? And, 
you know, at first I'll often get, oh, it's fine. You know, it's everything's fine. Oh, I don't feel a thing. But the point is that I open that door, whether they go through that door and explore it further is up to them. But it's almost about giving permission to for people to be able to talk about these things. And in a way, if they know that I'm willing to talk about something that is so personal, it, it gives them almost uh, comfort and permission to talk about things for them that may be more personal. And um, so there's always good in these conversations. And I find now talking about myself in a, in a purposeful manner, not just making the session about me or anything, can really deepen the rapport, can really get to the root of a lot of problems. And at the very least, it, it makes for a more authentic uh, partnership. And yet it still feels like such a complicated position to find yourself in with that kind of patient being who you are. How do you navigate your feelings about that in this sort of therapeutic alliance? Well, for me, it's there. there's so many different things. The first aspect is to be able to accept that everyone, no matter what they believe or do not believe, have their own individual journeys, to be able to first see the human in the room with you. And that I feel is a, is the first and utmost Im- importance, that my purpose there is really to be able to help this person navigate, you know, whatever may be troubling them or whatever um, distress that they're experiencing. So I center all of my uh, relationships based on that, that I have a purpose there. And then I also address the other part, which is I am human. And as a human being, I am also susceptible and have a right over my own feelings. I have, I have my own history. I have my own blind spots. I have so many different aspects that, you know, make me who I am. And it's acknowledgement of, of that, uh, um, that really allows you not to be entrapped by it. If you give yourself permission to be human, then you are really able to relate with anyone, no matter where they are in, in their journeys. But if you see yourself as apart from, from being human and you start seeing yourself as being better God forbid, or you see yourself as being anything that is in some way judgmental towards a person you're talking to, then there's there's no good that can come out of it. What I take from our faith about something like this, about these kind of relationships or how the prophets would, t- uh, you know, would talk to not only the people who believed in them, but the people who didn't. It was with the utmost, you know, respect, there was um, still humility. There was leading by example, and especially Prophet Muhammad wasallam, the way that he would have um, conversations. It was always with that understanding of, of the things that tie us is that we come from one creator and we are all, you know, human. And and I I was thinking even, you know, with Surah Abasa, where you have the blind man and there's so many interpretations about mm. that and how that the Prophet some frowned. And though there's so many interpretations about why he frowned or how he frowned or what does frown mean, the one takeaway in that is that there was 
uh, a position that is of privilege and there's a position that was of powerlessness. And I think about that a lot when I'm, I'm talking to my patients because though I'm the one who's quote unquote the expert or whatever in the room, it does not mean that I should ever be looking at my patient as if they, you know, they are anything less than. And and it doesn't matter if, like we're talking about faith here, if I'm, I'm Muslim and that person is, uh, you know, not, or that person has, you know, uh, is a veteran in the war, I have feelings about the war itself, or the person has a different lifestyle than I agree with, or the person uses substances that I do not. There's a lot of these kind of differences between us. But in the end, my purpose is not to see myself as being better than the other person. It is to actually meet them where they are and to be able to see the humanity in them and encourage their wellness um, for their sake. So with all of that in mind, can we talk about the relationship that the Muslim community has to mental health practice, especially if you consider that, particularly in the past 20 years, that as communities and as individuals, we've faced so much hatred and structural I mean, I want to say racism, but I'm not sure if that's the right... Yes, that's the right <laughs> word. The structure of racism that, that Muslims have faced over the last 20 years in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. And yet we're, we kind of leave ourselves to fend for ourselves. And it's still very mm -hmm. difficult for the Muslim mentality to kind of embrace this idea that mental illness and wellness are things that we need to be able to work into our lives so that we can heal and, you know, exist in the best way that we can. How do you think we can increase that awareness, mm. both about mental illness and general mental health in our communities and for ourselves as individuals? So when people are traumatized and when people go through these kind of major events where they feel targeted and they feel unsafe, it's very hard to then do the opposite, which is be vulnerable. And I think that that is a, a huge part of why we don't allow that part of us. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We just don't allow it to be front and center. And the problem of that is that if we don't admit to it, we don't accept it, we don't work through it, then that energy doesn't... Um, it's not like it just disappears. We can't fake it till we make it. It will then start, you know, taking its toll on ourselves. And so then you'd see self-destructive behavior. You see poor coping. You see, mm. you know, uh, displaced emotions, displaced anger, displaced frustration. And you see it coming out in ways that are very unhealthy. And so the, the things that we see on the surface, like, oh, my gosh, you know, now the Muslim community, we, well, how do we have substance abuse issues? Where did that come from? That's where it comes from. It's displaced. It's these things that we weren't able to address um, fully and openly and in healthier ways. So it got, uh, you know, sublimated into unhealthy ways, which is things that, again, happen for all types of people. But in terms of traumatized people, like we're talking about Muslims in this case, but you can see it in a lot of minorities. 
if you see any sort of disenfranchised group, you will see these kind of issues. And then people will focus on the outward, which is, oh, man, this group has a drinking problem. Oh, man, this group has a gambling problem. Oh, this uh, this group doesn't has poor family dynamics and all of this kind of stuff. And when mm. people start making these stereotypes, what they're missing is why did it get there? And the reason it usually gets there is because out of actually self-preservation. We're so afraid to be vulnerable because we're really afraid that if we show vulnerability, it will end us. It really feels like life or death. And I often, I'm, I'm, I'm very visual in when I'm thinking, I, I, I end up like seeing images of, of things. And in this particular instance, what I usually imagine um, is, is a kind of like a caged animal. You're you're seeing maybe the you know the bared teeth and the growling and the and the the posturing and the stance and all of those things, but anger is just anxiety manifesting itself. Anger is a symptom. The deeper issue, the actual feeling, is anxiety and fear, and it's a fight or flight response that we all have. I'm being threatened, and I have two options, which is I either run or I fight, and both of those things are in the end, not very productive. Um, because if we run away from our problems, it doesn't get addressed. And sometimes if we fight, it, it comes out as, um, you know, what are we fighting for? It gets lost in the anger. And so with mental health and my hope with mental health and why I encourage mental health seeking is mainly so we have a healthier way to work through these things. And it's not unique seeking mental health and seeking a help. I mean, we have the word nasiha in our own, you know, in our own faith culture. We do yeah. seek advice um, from from people that we trust and we're encouraged to. And, and sorrow and grief and anger and actually Actually, I would almost argue every emotion that we deem as being a bad emotion or a difficult emotion is something that has been mentioned either in um, the Quran or Hadith that has been manifested by a person that is considered very close to Allah. We have prophets and we have our own beloved prophet, وسلم, who was uh, who experienced grief to the point that, you know, a whole year is named after a year of sorrow. Um, we have plenty of evidence of him crying and grieving. We have plenty of evidence of him feeling anxiety. We have plenty of times in the Quran that God is comforting somebody. And why would he comfort if there wasn't a difficult emotion? We have plenty of Sahaba who were righteously angry. And we have we have every emotion out there that has been expressed by a human example of a person yeah. that we we value. So it's hard for us to pull down those defenses. I agree. I don't think that this is easy. And I, I empathize with people who struggle with this because I know it it is hard to trust. But there is so much good that comes from acknowledging our emotions. There's so much empathy. There is so much support. There is so much, you know, ability to um, use that, f you know, for good outcomes. There's a, such a thing as righteous anger. Anger has led to movements. If people aren't angry, we don't change. If we're not uncomfortable, we don't change. You know, you know, like they say, ignorance is bliss, right? Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought up anger because I think you're so right about how there is so much anger in us. And yet at the same time, like we were discussing earlier, 
we haven't felt that we were able to be angry in public. You know, we've had to sort of keep that anger to our private spaces. And Mm. even in our private spaces, Khadija and I talked about this in episode one, where you almost felt like you had to like thought police yourself. Mm. So there were things that we didn't even say to each other for a long time. And also like the FBI is listening to us all the time. (laughs) So you you think you're alone, but you're actually not alone. So, (laughs) but... As you said, anger can be a really important, you know, emotion where in Islam, Allah doesn't tell us not to be angry. He right. tells us to control our anger, right? So, yeah. like, what's the role of anger? What's the value of anger? And and can we use it also in public spaces? Yeah, no, I absolutely do find um, value in anger. I find value in frustration because in the end, like I was saying, discomfort is what leads to change. Ignorance is bliss. Discomfort leads to change. And I do believe that these are God-given feelings. And there are many examples of righteous anger within the framework of, of Islam. You know, if if we look at one primary example, I mean, Omar al-Khattab was probably one of the those people that you could say had a lot of righteous anger. I mean, uh, my son's name is Farouk, and we named him after Omar al-Khattab um, because he was known as al-Farouk. And the Farouk is the definition of it is like you know from the um, the word Farq to be able to tell the difference, to be able to uh, it's like the criteria mm-hmm. like Furqan, um, Farq, Farouk. They all come from the same root, which is being able to differentiate between right and wrong. And Al-Farouq was given to a person who was angry and who used his anger in order to further the cause of Islam. His anger and his frustration with the way that things were run in Mecca uh, led him publicly, speaking of publicly admitting that we're angry, he got that uh, nickname or, or that kunya when he encouraged all these Muslims who were not praying in public to pray for the first time at the Kaaba. And that happened, that openness, that almost rebellion, that almost like here we are and we exist and we have a right to be here. And and really, it kind of put this movement into action rather than being just something that was behind the scenes was his ability to use that anger towards something that was righteous. And to the point that the, the prophet gave him that name of, of Al-Farouk. So these are the examples that we have and that we're supposed to have and we're lucky to have that remind us that emotions are emotions. They're all God-given. Um, they're all from him in the end. And we also know of God's own anger and his own um, um, uh, his his happiness towards us, his um, empathy for us, his uh, comforting us, his all of the different things that he he is and all of the names that he has. But it, he has all of the spectrum of emotions. And, and I think that part of what I value in knowing all these things, and I openly discuss with people who are non-Muslim, is that, you know, God is everything. And so he has all of this. And him, by him having all of these different names, some that are incredibly comforting and some that are powerful and, and all that that is in between, uh, serve to remind us that we too have all of these different emotions, but they're not bad or good. They all have purpose. It is about finding their purpose and using them purposefully. Mm, beautifully said. As Muslims, we have an instinct to reach for 
Islamic teachings to therapize ourselves, just like mm. how you've described, that we are always reaching for what we know about our deen to help us process the things that we go through. And can I tell a story here? I don't know if I'm allowed to tell a story on someone else's interview. Yeah, please. <laughs> Let me tell you about the first time I tried to get therapy. <laughs> I was in university. I was, uh, I think, in my second year. I had, ha I just was, I had a chronic illness and Everything was difficult. I was extremely depressed, though I did not know that at the time. And mm. when my tutor suggested that I was depressed, I was very angry. I'm absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nevertheless, mm -hmm. um, I took advantage of student services because they were free. I was a student. You know, things are better when you're a student that way. So I went to my university's uh, counseling service. And the funny thing is, I actually forgot about this until my sister reminded me the other day. And what happened is... I don't even know what I went for. I just, I was depressed. And she said, have you thought about getting a boyfriend? Good Lord. Wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and like, just like 20 years. I haven't thought about that nearly 20 years. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so basically the question here is after my little um, no. digression, the question is that so during my own counselor training, which um, I went through when I was doing my uh, postgrad, I had that experience of both giving and receiving sort of practice therapy because you had to have a certain number of hours where you yourself got therapy to make sure that you were then able to be unmessed up enough to help other people become unmessed up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like during that process, I think what f frustrated me a lot and w what was the driver for me to seek that path in the first place was that I never felt that the models of care that were available were ever suited to our very specific Muslim needs. And what's your view on that? Do you think the current mm. models of care cater to to the Muslim psyche or and to Muslim beliefs uh, and the way that we live in the world? And if not, I'm like assuming your answer here, which may not even be the case. <laughs> What's missing in, in those models of care? And what would you like to see or to develop in your own practice? You know, like you, I've had a lot of thoughts about um, this particular question. And I think that it is incredibly individual. And this is not a cop-out. This is something that I've really thought about. What I have found, because I do have a lot of Muslim patients, is that not any one of them is the same and not any one of them is the same in the way they practice the religion or or relate to the religion or the way that um, they view the many, many, many different aspects of religion. And, and so there is not a one size fits all. And I don't think that there will be a one psychiatrist or one therapist fits all for Muslims, I used to tell myself that there is, you know, one day I'm going, going to write um, kind of a manual for non-Muslim therapists and psychiatrists on on how to conduct therapy or what things to focus on or to understand about the Muslim experience. But as you guys may know from the work that you're doing here, this conversation will be very different from your next guest's conversation will be very different from the next guest and next guest. And yet 
we may all be Muslim. Mm. And and it's because that in the end, we are very individual. And what I found um, in my own practice with counseling Muslims is that there is a lot of assumptions that we don't even realize that we make about one another. For example, I'll have a person bring up a hadith And even as we were discussing hadith right here, and when I was telling you, you know, there's so many different interpretations of that one, the opening ayah of Abasa, there are so many different interpretations on how people view a number of things in in our own faith. And that includes things that we are familiar with, such as hijab, but there are things that are... um, maybe unfamiliar to us, such as, you know, even things like plural marriages and dating. And, you know, you're as funny that she said, you know, get a boyfriend or something like that. And I'll tell you, I have Muslims who are my patients who date. And I have uh, a variety of different uh, world experiences. And so I'll have a, a Muslim patient and they'll do this thing where they'll say, oh, you know what I mean. And then I actually have to stop them and say, no, actually, I don't. Please explain what you mean. And even though we're from the same faith, because there's a nuance in what they're trying to get to mm-hmm. that I very well could be missing because I interpret it differently. And even if they might be saying the same hadith, the same uh, the ayah, they might be saying the same thing. They might even be from the same like I'm. I'm. My parents are from the you know Indian subcontinent. Even if they may be desi and they're trying to say something. There is something to be said about shared experiences, and then there's something to be said about the individual in that subculture itself. So what I really recommend for for people when they're they're seeking a counselor, they're seeking advice, they're seeking therapy, they're seeking medication, whatever it may be, is that to try their best to go in, you know, a focusing on what is it that they want to say rather than what they want the the psychiatrist or the therapist to hear. And there's a difference in what I'm saying here because I encourage my patients to own their narratives. And what can often happen in a therapeutic relationship is that the client or the patient assumes that we know what they're talking about based on it's something that could be completely arbitrary that, you know, um, I'm the same age as that person or I got one pop culture reference, but I may not have gotten the other one. But there's so many different things that make us individual. And so I often remind my patients, and this is what I would say to Muslims seeking help, is the point of therapy is to learn yourself, to learn and own who you are. And it doesn't really have to do with the person you're speaking to. That person is really there for you. And it's there for you to be able to use as a sounding board, as a sparring partner, as a practice for maybe you want to go over how you want to discuss something difficult with your family and you're using the therapist as a practice to do that. And so the only thing that you... Um, should be worried about is, am I able to be authentic to who I am? And if you're not, then that's a point of therapy is why not? What is getting in my way of owning who I am? And then that really can be done with anyone. Um, So I will, I'll say both sides. Yes, it can be beneficial to have someone who has a shared experience of of being a Muslim in America, uh, for example. On the other hand, it could be limiting because you make assumptions that that person knows you maybe more than they actually do. I hope that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. 
Absolutely does. I'm just sitting here absorbing the therapy. <laughs> I know, right? I feel like we should be paying you. Send us you. the bill. <laughs> no, yeah. no. <laughs> oh, you guys. No, not at all. But you know, Khadija, what was interesting, you know, I, I was I was analyzing my own emotions um, and my own thoughts of when that therapist said that to you. I was just thinking that that is such a big no-no <laughs> in therapy. Um, a, because it was incredibly, like we... um, It was lazy, I think. It's lazy. Yeah. It's lazy. And it's also like suggesting something. Um, I, I, I never do that. And, and so I'm very surprised that they, that, you know, they made an, a very radical assumption. They gave this kind of, uh, you know, response, which which was so I found to be very irrelevant or very, <laughs> I don't know, it just, well, it just felt can, like such a non sequitur. Shall I follow this up with sort of yeah. the closing story on this? Because I had a few more encounters in between. But the last one that I remember was with actually, he was my supervisor for my master's thesis. Mm -hmm. And he was a brilliant great man uh, his name was Derek May he was retiring that year when I was there one of the things he said because I worked for him during that time as well one of the things he said to me when we were talking about this and I, I must have recounted that experience to him and he said like have you thought about that like perhaps your beliefs are limiting your experience of your life he didn't say it in quite those words I'm sort of reframing it in a more mm eloquent way <laughs> but he was like you know have you thought that you're limiting yourself like why don't you go out and have these experiences and I get where he was coming from and I feel that he really sincerely meant well he was a great man is mm -hmm. I hope I hope you're still alive Derek <laughs> I'm sorry I don't know um, but I just felt this really deep frustration that how little known we are, how unknown we are mm. to our non-Muslim peers, that I had spent years with them and mm -hmm. I had probably had these conversations with them and yet I mm. still couldn't get them to understand that there were lines that I wouldn't cross and that it right. wasn't an option for me to cross them. So you couldn't merely suggest, have you thought about doing this or, you know, because I had made different choices. Like my choices about the priorities in my life. My priorities are Allah. They're preserving my, you know, the the lines between halal and haram. So the suggestion that, oh, I should go and do something haram just to check that I'm okay. Like it's it's so difficult to make yourself known to people who don't have the same frame of reference as you. Mm. What I would add to that conversation, Khadija, is um that I find that even though that that feels like such a disconnect, and even I felt that very jarring um, feeling, you know, that kind of intrusion and and that assumption. What I have realized is that talking about you know the the subjects with people who do not have that shared experience really solidify for me why I do the things that I do. And it would ground me. So, I mean, for this, for for me, when I had this, um, you know, this uh, mentor and is, you know, this Jewish um, man in his seventies, um, as as my uh, supervisor during residency, and he was telling me, you know, do you ever talk about your hijab? And I think you think about your hijab a lot, and all of this kind of stuff. Even though it was, you know, for me, it wasn't like that this kind of intrusion, but it was jarring when he mentioned my hijab. I found that by me explaining 
and talking about hijab to him, it allowed me to understand why I did it more. It wasn't just a thought in my head. It wasn't just something that I always knew. But putting words to thoughts is incredibly healing. I mean, it's similar to journaling, is mm. that where we're able to put down why exactly um, we feel or do or say the things we do and, and really put it into language and use that skill of ours. It's, it's a gift and it, it, it becomes something that you feel more certain I think part of why we feel frustrated when we are having to explain these things to people all the time is is because oftentimes we internally first we're exhausted absolutely from living like this always but at the same time the ex- where does the exhaustion come from the exhaustion comes from not being able to own our own narratives, not being able to express ourselves openly by having to work within a framework that was not of our own making. It comes from having to fit ourselves in a societal rules and, and cultural norms that are it's not norm. upstream when everyone else is rowing downstream. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then at the same time, it makes us more intentional. Yeah, that's true. And that's a conversation I was uh, just observing. Um, even with uh, with Anissa, I think you had made a recent post about Marvel and about Miss Marvel. And I think somebody had mentioned that themselves um, on that post that, you know, if I didn't have this, this battle or this hardship, would I really be who I am today? Would I really know who I am today? Mm-hmm. Would it have made me fight? Would it have made me be intentional? And and that's always the question. Like, are we products of our hardships or are we who we are despite them? And so it's, I don't think we would be who we are without the experiences that we've had. Mm. And God knows that. And, and that is why in our faith, so much of it is being able to say, Alhamdulillah, fi kulli hal, that we are able to see him in everything, in every state that we're in, and believe that there is reason for praise and reason for thankfulness and gratitude, even as we're navigating difficulty. And I think that that, that is the blessing and that's the comfort that he gives in our faith. Absolutely. So like shifting gears a little bit to more recent things. Mm-hmm. So you founded the Physician Support Line in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I remember from the beginning, like as I've been watching you and observing your posts and your interviews and stuff, and how you stressed that a lot of doctors couldn't ask for help because they were being treated as heroes and being called heroes, and that it, it ended up being a barrier for them to actually ask for the help that they needed. Mm-hmm. But then I re- read a recent interview where you mentioned that you're now there's an anger in doctors because mm-hmm. suddenly the people that they're trying to save sacrificing their lives and their mental health and their safety and everything mm-hmm. are like refusing to, you know, wear masks and get vaccinated, which is like the bare minimum of what you can do. Right. And this propaganda uh, and this like kind of these heroes being turned into villains and how there's always like this really black and white sort of, mm-hmm. you know, we, we were talking about it earlier, like you're with us or you're against us. Like we we've, we saw this immediately post 9-11 era too. And like all of this misinformation and dogged ignorance, like, I guess what I'm asking is, do you see a through line between these kind of narratives 
I'm like, what is the psychology behind that? If that's not too large of a question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, not at all. I think about it often. I, I, I think that um, it all comes down to one theme, whether it's about 9-11, whether it's about how we're navigating the pandemic now. And it's about dehumanizing people. You call people heroes, you're dehumanizing them there too, because you're giving them the pressure and expectations of having superpowers, of being limitless. And that's just not true. In the end, um, healthcare workers, doctors, everyone who's fighting their, this pandemic, they're as susceptible, if not more susceptible, to all of the things that are, you know, making their patients scared. And so the, there is that dehumanization that occurs when we put people on pedestals. And there is dehumanization that occurs when you go the opposite direction, as we saw with 9-11 and now we're seeing with healthcare workers, which is you make them um, into the villains. And all of it leads to lack of empathy. It leads to deterioration of community and purpose and common mission. And all of these things are the scariest parts of dealing with major world events because that's where a major loss of life and fallout happen, whether we're talking about wars, whether we're talking about loss of life because of this pandemic, is if we're not able to see the people who are dying, the people who are suffering, the people who are sacrificing, um, whether it's in Afghanistan, whether it's in Palestine, whether it's at home, if we're not able to see ourselves in each other, we're not able to see the humanity in each other, it's, it's going to be to our own detriment. And I think that's how I've been tying these two um, two situations together. And then that's why I've been encouraging throughout our conversation that it's important to be recognized for uh, for our race and our religion and our and our different um, and important parts of our identity. But it is essential that we are able to see ourselves as being human. So true. That seems like the perfect note to close out on <laughs> yeah I, think. Not sure, but I feel like we just need like a long moment of quiet to let it all just <laughs> <laughs> so everyone pause your players and just take your moment have some tea and think about this all so on a on a slightly less somber note um what's mm -hmm. one thing that you're working on right now that you're excited to share with the world what i'm excited uh, i guess oh gosh what i'm excited to share I'm, I'm, I'm excited and relieved and, and um, comforted by the fact that, you know, COVID, again, has in a way brought us to a place where we're able to remember and value things that we used to take for granted. And it was something similar to what Khadija was saying earlier, is that sometimes we're brought to these very difficult places as a reminder of, you know, that the, the one, the only being we have uh, as our stronghold, as our wali and everything else is, is Allah. And it's been humbling and beautiful and enriching to be making um, these kind of uh, connections, um, despite the fact that we're so isolated, like Anisa, you and I, it's it's so it's so comforting and heartwarming to see you. It's been years um, since I've gotten to see you, and um, 
it's been a blessing. And I think that is what I'm feeling excited, if I could call it that, is how all of us are being very thoughtful in our interactions with the people that we value and we love. Um, We are wanting more meaning in these interactions. We are not going through the motions as much anymore. And I love that. And I, I value that. And I, I am excited by that for the future. In terms of uh, projects, the things that I'm working on right now are, um, you know, are all very uh, kind of systemic issues um, with mental health amongst physicians and healthcare workers. I've, I'm working on how to change the internal culture of mental health stigma amongst physicians. We have a very high suicide rate in our profession, and we have a very high stigma about mental health because of all the expectations that we're supposed to have all the answers and and, and be the ones who are giving healing. We don't see ourselves as being worthy of receiving that healing and wellness. And so there's a lot of systemic issues that have created barriers for physicians in seeking help, Um, partnering with a lot of physician-led organizations to change that culture um, and to not penalize physicians um, when they do need to, you know, seek uh, counseling or go to therapy or have a psychiatrist. And in terms of Muslim mental health, I've been very excited to work with um, the who's who of, of um, um, mental health in the American Muslim community, including my um, colleague um, and fellow psychiatrist, Dr. Rania Wad, and her institutions on um, mental health and, you know, the Islamic uh, um, Policy Institute. And there's there's so many different um, organizations that are really centering Muslim mental health. And it's been wonderful to work with um, like-minded uh, people in, in learning more about what is at the root of our mental health and, and how to, you know, reach people where they're at. Mm-hmm. So that's me, guys. It's, it's, been, it's been exciting, and I'm, I'm truly, truly humbled. And I'm humbled by this conversation today. I, I thank you guys for thinking that my, my thoughts and my insights are worthy of discussion, and I thank you for valuing them and bringing me here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing so many personal things. Like I I know we asked you some really deep <laughs> and personal questions and you just <laughs> laid it all out on the table, which we really, really appreciate because one of the things that we wanted to do with this podcast is not just be doing run-of-the-mill interviews. Yeah. Yeah. Or or just kind of recounting history, but really having conversations. You know, you mentioned earlier about how when people go through trauma, it's hard for them to be vulnerable. And Lija and I were discussing as we were planning this project of like how we don't really talk to each other about this. And Lija and I are so close that we talk almost every day, you know, whether that's over text or whatever. But like the first time we really talked about 9-11 9-11 and the Islamophobia mm. that we've been through was like the, when we sat down to record episode was one. Was our literal first episode? Yeah. yeah. Which we then scrapped <laughs> because it was just, it was too oh, messy wow. because it was the first time we'd ever talked about it. Yeah. And like bringing those thoughts out required us also to bring the feelings out. And those feelings are messy. <laughs> They're messy. Yeah. Very messy. Remember, you know, like we were describing before. You need the mess, right? 
before you can clean it up. Yeah, you need the breakdowns before the breakthroughs, you know? You I'm need getting the a messy... t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, get it, guys. Get it. You know, you need that messy closet before you you have the organized one. Hmm. And so, subhanAllah, there's always good. There's always good that comes out of of you know, piecing these things apart, you know, and, and I, and I uh, pray for you guys, may there be honestly, may there be good and um, baraka and um, permission in the vulnerabilities that we're all sharing with one another today. And may it encourage others to, to allow it within themselves and allow it with the ones that they trust, you know, with the goal that inshallah will heal. And and I do believe in that promise from Allah that you know there that He doesn't create more than we can bear, mm-hmm. and He and He doesn't give us a test that we cannot pass. And I do hope that we're able to see these things and inshallah navigate them in a way that allow us success in this life and the next. I mean, I mean, inshallah. Yeah. And I I love that you left us on a note of hope because we've been talking about so many heavy things, but. You know, I also pray that like all of the things that you're doing are, you know, successful and they bring benefit and like reward for you. Mm-hmm. And Amen. you're doing so much great work, mashallah. We're so blessed to have you, uh, you know, talk to us. And I miss you too. It's been so oh, long. I miss you too. I just want to give you a hug. Too. Me too. Me too. Sincerely, I'm I'm so thankful for you. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah for these connections and and um, you know may good beget good. Inshallah, mm. that's the I goal. I mean, I mean. So, where can um, our listeners find you on social media? Dropping truth bums. <laughs> The only kind of bums that Muslims can drop, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> oh, you guys are amazing. So, yes, if you know you would like to follow um, me, I am on Twitter at uh, shrink wrapping is, is my handle. Such a great handle. <laughs> without the W. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so great. The, yeah, it's without the W. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, guys, it's sad. When I made that, I I laughed so hard. My husband's like, you got to stop. Every time I look at it, I think it's great. (laughs) So do you rap? I have to ask. That's what I really wanted to know. Oh, my gosh. You guys don't want to (laughs) know. Inshallah, one day. That might be another. Yeah, it will. It will happen, you guys. It will happen one day. But. But regardless, yes, uh, <laughs> I do. But um, but so shrink wrapping without the W. It's the same handle on Instagram, and it's just my name on Facebook, which I don't think is really popular anymore. Only old people <laughs> um, like us. Only I mean. old people like us are really on there. Um, but there it is. And where can people find us? Find us on Twitter at MipsPod. That's M I P S P O D. And you can email us at musliminplainsight at gmail.com. And please do email us. We love emails. Yes. And you can subscribe if you go to musliminplainsight.com. And that wraps up our and conversation with Dr. Mona Masroud. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your knowledge with us. Take care, okay? You too. Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Alaykum salam. Alaykum.